Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 20th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is smartphone security, a very hot topic to say the least. We're pleased to welcome as our guest, Andrew Hogue. Andrew is a computer scientist, a certified forensic analyst, holding the GCFA and CCE, a computer and mobile forensics researcher, the author of two forensic and security books, an expert witness and a co-founder of Via Forensics, an innovative digital forensics and security firm. He divides his energies between investigations, forensic software development, and research in digital forensics and security. He also has two patents pending in the area of forensics and data recovery. That's quite a mouthful. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, John. It's great to be here, and sorry for the long intro. (laughs) We have the same problems. (laughs) Andrew, I'm going to start with the question that John and I are most frequently asked when we lecture, and that is, what in the heck is the most secure smartphone? Well, I assume that uh, we're not talking about the cell phones or smartphones that the military makes, uh, which would be the, the answer to that question. Uh, the, the issue is, is that the consumer level smartphones, and by that, the most popular ones being iPhone, Android, and Blackberries on the RIM platform, um, all have their share of security issues, issues that I think we'll dive into today and, and may cause some people, uh, to pause. Uh, so the real challenge is, is, is whether or not these, uh, security issues are ones that make it, uh, too challenging, too insecure for people to use. Previously, the most secure smartphone at the consumer level was considered the BlackBerry. Um, but more recently, people have begun uh, to realize that there are some uh, pretty significant issues in that platform. Um, the encryption has recently been cracked, um, and a lot of that data is susceptible to foreign governments at this point now. So it's really a challenging question to answer, and, and one that I think uh, as we go through the interview, we'll probably cover in some more detail. Yes, yeah, certainly will. Um, and and from the, from the enterprise level, um, sort of building on that a little bit, what about the iPhone and, and the Androids? Do you think that they're they're safe enough to, to use for uh, enterprises? Well, I think that's really the pertinent question. Um, it's always good to compare things and try to determine which is more secure. Um, the platforms all have pros and cons. But the pertinent question is whether or not a device uh, is secure enough for a particular enterprise. Now, we advise some clients who travel internationally and have very, very sensitive intellectual property. And that's different than, let's say, small to medium-sized enterprises that are primarily operating in the U.S., uh, or perhaps even unique concerns that attorneys may have with sensitive information being exchanged. So it really becomes a question of of what sort of security requirements does the enterprise themselves have? And even though we're security folks and like to point out all the different issues that we find, uh, we take a very pragmatic view. Uh, we try not to be the sky is falling company where everything is 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 in an awful shape. So we do believe that there are quite a few use cases where uh, enterprises can use iPhone, Android, uh, BlackBerry. Um, there are some things that they need to do in order to secure them uh, beyond what you get out of the box. But there certainly are a lot of enterprises that can use these devices 
um, and they're secure enough essentially for day-to-day use at the enterprise. Let, let me uh, take up something that you mentioned there about people who travel internationally with very secure data. What do you advise those people to do? In most cases, we advise them not to bring their smartphone at all um, and to even consider whether or not they should bring their laptop. Um, whether it's here in the U.S. Um, or in other countries, it's, it's fairly well known that uh, when you're stopped and you're going through customs, uh, when they're searching your devices, they sometimes go to a back room and they're gone for about an hour. And a lot of people uh, who may be listening with a forensics background know that there's a good chance that they're basically uh, imaging the device and taking a look at it. Now, I have don't have any firsthand personal knowledge of this, uh, but certainly if some countries uh, are able to image your device and, and extract sensitive intellectual property, uh, maybe that information gets passed on to your competitors. Um, and so we, we advise a lot of caution when you have sensitive IP. We also think that people should consider what do they need when they're traveling. It's great to have every email that you've ever received in case something comes up. Um, but on the flip side, um, do you really need that all the time? Do you need to have it while you're on the airplane or, or in the airport? Uh, there's a big difference between uh, protecting data that's at rest on the device itself and protecting data in transit. And a lot of the protocols that we use when we protect data in transit, um, you're familiar with the secure websites and the VPN technologies, really do a pretty good job. I mean, the government themselves use them to protect classified information. So it's possible, it's actually easier to protect data in transit than data at rest. One other um, point to consider, people often ask us whether or not smartphones uh, are less secure than a laptop. Um, Both of them, when you read the specs, can offer encryption. And there's some very, very big differences. Um, So the people on the call who do forensics regularly know, for instance, that uh, pretty much all of the encryption on the iOS, Apple devices, is simply circumvented. So even though it sounds like it's encrypted and it has AES-256 and all these other different terms that they'll throw out there, uh, by and large, the encryption on iOS devices uh, is circumvented. Um, That's very different from what you see when encryption's uh, properly deployed on laptops, for instance, with full disk encryption using specialized software. So the end answer is it's far more difficult to secure mobile devices uh, when the data is at rest. And so for very sensitive situations, we simply advise don't take that device, uh, bring a separate device that allows you to do phone calls and things of that sort, um, and use a full-blown laptop or computer uh, with things such as VPN um, to essentially access the information you need uh, instead of having it stored on the device that you take through uh, a foreign country's uh, customs. Well, I, I think uh, he probably answered the question I was going to ask next, John, so maybe it's your turn. Yeah, Andrew, how, how easy is it to put spyware on a, on a smartphone, and, and can that actually be prevented? So it's, um, we get uh, quite a few inquiries about spyware cases, um, and, and we basically group them into two categories. Um, about 95% of them are folks that um, are very concerned that somebody's snooping on them and nothing's really happening. Um, it, it's just kind of a paranoia is probably too strong of a word, but, but uh, people tend to see uh, lots of activities that they can then attribute to spyware. Most of the time, we do not find it. And the times that you're really concerned about finding spyware um, are the ones that are the more sophisticated ones. So let's say... Um, it was uh, corporate espionage or foreign government or things of that sort. 
Um, the type of spyware that might exist in those situations are far more stealthy, far more difficult to find. So our experience thus far, and it could change over time, has been that um, in general, it's not very likely to find spyware on the phones. Um, it can happen, but we more often than not get cases that are that are false positives. Um, it's it's not terribly easy to do. Um, if we're talking more about individuals that know each other, maybe a domestic situation, they have access to each other's devices. Um, there's some software that you can buy. There's software you can install. Some of it works. Some of it doesn't. Um, but in the more serious cases, and in, in the ones as a as a uh, security company that we focus on, are ones again where uh, maybe there's corporate espionage uh, or there's a state actor that's backing it. Um, and those are uh, far more difficult to detect, um, far more difficult to put on the phones. Um, but I think conceptually, yes, it is possible. The same types of things that we see with um, rootkits on laptops and desktops, that kind of technology can be developed. In fact, uh, we ourselves have developed um, that type of technology for the Android platform, um, and we use it to secure uh, the Android platform well beyond what you get out of the box. But one of the key requirements for our security feature is, is that once um, the technology is installed, uh, we immediately hide ourselves. So on um, on that particular device, uh, on an Android device, once we install this, this advanced security platform that we developed, it hides itself and is essentially no longer detectable. So these things are possible to do. They're not as easy as people think. Um, and beyond the individuals that know each other, it doesn't happen uh, terribly often in ways that we can detect. I was going to say that's typical of what we've seen. Andrew is uh, really family law cases is where Correct. one spouse or the other is putting putting this stuff uh, on on the other's phone. But but you're right. I mean, it's the certainly it's accessible to them. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Um, and there's some really interesting technologies um, or techniques that are kind of on the cutting edge. A lot of people don't realize that smartphones typically have two processors in them. And the first one is the one that we all think about and read about in the specs, which is the main CPU and how fast is it and things of that sort. There's a whole separate CPU um, that's used to manage the cellular uh, connection. Um, and it has its own separate code. It's called baseband. And what's interesting is, is that there have been some, some work done recently, and you've seen it at some of the, uh, the different hacking conferences, I think DEFCON and um, uh, the, the local, uh, the, the most recent chaos uh, one had some research in this. But what happens is, is that the code is very, very old on a lot of these phones that run the cellular modem, the baseband modem. They're actually susceptible to attack. And so when you talk about far more sophisticated attacks that get beyond the family law, um, it's possible, for instance, to set up your own GSM uh, phone tower to act like you're a, um, a cellular carrier and to potentially infect phones uh, through the baseband modems. So those are the kinds of techniques that are far less common, um, far more targeted, um, and, and could be you know, far more damaging uh, from a corporate or, or state's perspective. Um, the family law stuff is, is something that probably happens and, and we generally don't uh, do those cases. Well, one of the questions we get asked a lot, because people just don't believe it, so I'll let you answer it, are mobile devices really a target for sophisticated cyber criminals? Oh, I, we think the question that's absolutely. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, first of all, the motivations for cyber criminals are, in general, to make money or to, let's say, steal intellectual property. And mobile devices have essentially become the perfect target. They are always connected to the Internet. They typically combine both corporate data and user data. 
So it used to be, well, you could target their corporate device and you have to get through firewalls and antivirus, but then you get a bunch of great corporate info. Or you could target their home device to try to get their banking information and do a identity theft. Well, the mobile devices out there today have both of those pieces of information typically on them. The other big thing that's, that's changing um, the threat model here is that uh, these devices are changing constantly. So we see updates from Apple and from Google. Uh, we see um, hundreds of thousands of mobile apps. When you put all of those things together, mobile devices become the perfect opportunity, the perfect target for cyber criminals. Um, there are hundreds of millions of them. More, more mobile phones were bought last year than actual computers. Um, and they don't have things typically like firewalls. Um, so while we haven't seen a large attack where, you know, thousands, tens of thousands or millions of people's uh, information has been compromised, uh, we have, um, uh, you know, we do believe that those things are on the horizon. Um, and we had a couple of interesting findings. Um, this was, a, I believe, about 12, 15 months ago. Uh, we found what was called a man-in-the-middle attack against uh, PayPal for iPhone. And it's a very popular app, and PayPal has a very sophisticated development and security team. But something slipped by, and it put about 4.5 million users at risk where a, an attacker could sit between them and PayPal and intercept their traffic. So we look at the apps as a real potential target um, for extracting information. Just before Christmas, we posted a, a very interesting proof of concept on our website where we created an Android app that did not request any permissions. So it just looked like it was a game uh, and had no permissions. When the person installed it and locked their phone, we created what's called a reverse shell back into their phone. And so while they weren't looking at their device, we had the ability to pull it up, it showed up on our console, and then we could connect in and read files off of their SD card. Um, so these are examples of techniques that uh, researchers such as ourselves are uncovering. Um, and unlike the cyber criminals, you know, we, we may get some visibility in the press, but the cyber criminals, when they come up with these attacks, they make money and they make millions and millions of dollars of money. So we very much think that the mobile platform uh, will become the, the platform of choice uh, for sophisticated cyber criminals in the future. Well, wow, that's pretty scary. Uh, well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan and Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents, realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Andrew Hogue, the co-founder of Via Forensics and a noted computer scientist. Andrew, what kinds of policy should corporations be considering to address mobile devices? It's a great question because mobile devices have really come uh, into the enterprise without a lot of um, planning from the IT departments. Um, there's a, a term that you see a lot of people in the press talking about the consumerization of IT. Essentially, these devices started at home uh, and they ended up in the enterprise before anybody knew it. And for that reason, a lot of the typical controls that we see in enterprises are not there. We strongly advise that clients look at their uh, their basic policies that they use to govern um, their employees, their processes, and their procedures. And a couple of examples would be the acceptable use policy for what you can and can't do on computer systems, data security policies, setting uh, what password lengths should be, uh, what types of emails uh, should or should not be sent on mobile devices, uh, what sort of programs shouldn't be installed or can be installed, um, and things such as backups and data retention. Uh, we're doing more and more cases now where we come in as, as an expert witness on a, on a uh, let's say, a litigation, uh, and there's some sort of mobile device that's involved. And the companies um, didn't specify any policies about whether or not they had access to the SMS or whether or not you can send sensitive company information over SMS or only via email. And what's happening is is that lots of money, lots of energy, lots of confusion is being created uh, in legal cases, in internal investigations, um, and these things can be mitigated by updating your policies. So we encourage uh, companies to form a committee or a group to look at each of your policies uh, and to determine uh, where these policies need to be updated to address mobile devices. And that really protects you as a company and clearly lets your employees know what they should and shouldn't do and what they can expect when it comes to their devices. So, Andrew, what do you think of the BYOD phenomenon? And and for our listeners, that's bring your own device. Um, Should it be allowed? And if you do allow it, how do you best manage different types of phones? Well, I, it was an interesting when we first started hearing it. And we were we were surprised. We were advising that companies not do it a number of years ago, because we felt that it relinquished too much control uh, away from or gave too much control to the employees. Um, and so, if you think about a typical laptop at a company, if somebody is is under investigation or has done something perhaps they shouldn't, um, the company has explicit rights to take that computer, to image it, to investigate it, to potentially use it in a legal case. And you you essentially relinquish that control when employees are bringing their own devices. And then secondarily, um, you don't control the device, therefore you can't tell them what to do. So you can't necessarily install the software that you want. So we thought that BYOD in the beginning was was a policy that we would advise against. But you can't ignore what's happening. Major, major (laughs) companies are doing it. Um, We're right with you. We were advising against it too. And and then we threw up our hands and said, you know, you you can't fight City Hall. (laughs) Exactly. So, so we, we are far more pragmatic um, about these things. We, we think that it's going to happen. There's some cost efficiencies, perhaps, for large companies, but by and large, they're going to spend just as much time and energy uh, dealing with it. So we don't think the main driver should be cost, um, but not having to uh, deal with everybody's devices, allowing your employees to, to be effective and efficient because they're already using their iPhone or their Android device, and plugging that into your environment in a secure fashion, in a manner in which you can control, is the nice middle ground to find. And so there's new technologies that are being developed, um, things such as policies, which we just mentioned, need to be addressed. Um, 
Well, we do think that it's inevitable. Um, it's going to happen um, in that provided companies take a number of, of key steps, um, they can enter into this new BYOD and consumerization of IT world um, without losing all of the controls and, and um, um, techniques that they had in place previously. Can you talk to us a little bit about what they call MDMs, which is uh, mobile device managers, for those who may not know, um, and, and how those are used and whether you recommend sandboxing company data and explain what that means? Sure, absolutely. So MDMs are um, a fairly new uh, type of software that's popped up. Mobile device management is the category that they fall under. And uh, the because the these smartphones essentially started with the consumers, they didn't grow up with all of the enterprise management tools that we're typically used to. And so for those that are familiar with BlackBerry, uh, there was the BlackBerry Enterprise Server and there was a management console and everything that IT needed to control the devices. You essentially did not get that for years and years and years with iPhone and with Android. So Apple and Google are making all of their money by playing to the consumers. And they're not trying to ignore the enterprises, but their main driver is consumer adoption. What they've done is they've built in some basic hooks, we call them APIs, that allow software developers to create a, a management framework that would control the iPhones or the Android devices. And so these are the MDM providers. Um, they're a very fast-growing um, marketplace. We've done some tests on MDMs, and we think that the market is not terribly mature. So there sometimes are lots of features that are explained and said that they work, uh, and we haven't always found them to work. And the big thing that we caution companies is, is you should consider mobile device management as an administration or management oversight. If you think you're buying extra security, in general, you're not. And we've done some very empirical testing. We have a report on our website that, that goes through some of these things. But um, for instance, they don't often provide uh, any additional encryption or data security techniques. They just may allow you to manage them a little better. There is a subset or, or slightly different technology, which is called sandboxing. And the idea is, instead of just providing ways to manage the existing de uh, device, can a software company create a secure sandbox that's encrypted, that enforces your policies, that gives the company complete control? and leave the rest of the phone the way it is for the consumer. And um, they, this has been in development for a number of years, um, and there are a number of solutions that actually do work, and we've tested them um, quite thoroughly. Um, and we're, we're very impressed with what they're able to do. So essentially, you can allow the consumer to install unsafe software. They can do whatever they want on their device. But in order to access corporate data, they have to run a special app. They have to put in a passcode or password that fits the policy that you set, and it uses encryption above and beyond what the platform itself might provide. And so for folks that have sensitive intellectual property uh, or other security concerns but still need to enforce a BYOD policy or, or allow their company, their um, employees to bring their own devices, uh, we encourage them to look more down the sandboxing route than MDM. And they're not mutually exclusive. You may choose to have a sandbox, and at the same time, there's a bunch of provisioning and other uh, administration you want to do on a mobile device. And so some people actually end up buying both. Well, Landry, my next question is certainly one that we can both answer, but can you tell our audience how much deleted data is likely to be retrieved forensically from the, the three major uh, phones, BlackBerry, iPhone, and Androids? Sure. Yeah, it's always a, a changing uh, answer, um, but by and large, is we can recover a lot more data than most people think. 
And uh, back in the iOS 3 days, uh, typical iPhone, we would recover 50,000, 60,000 files deleted. Uh, didn't matter whether or not files were deleted. Um, iOS has since moved to a per-file uh, encryption key. So each file gets its own unique encryption key. And that's actually reduced uh, the amount of data that we recover. It's made it more challenging to recover unallocated space. Uh, we have some very cutting-edge techniques uh, where, for instance, modern file systems use a technique called journaling. And so they, in order to prevent uh, data loss when power is unexpectedly uh, taken away, um, they journal different files. And so we've been able to scrape the journal files and actually recover deleted uh, encryption keys. So there's some very cutting edge things that can be done, but by and large, the encryption is getting better and we tend to recover less information on iOS uh, than we did in the past. Um, on Android, um, we do recover quite a bit of information as well. Um, they just now have moved to supporting encryption in their latest version across the board. So it kind of remains to be seen um, how well the encryption is implemented and how many devices um, uh, end up using it. Uh, but without the encryption, uh, we can recover, obviously, enormous amounts of data. And then BlackBerry was typically the, the most secure, and nobody could get into them. And for a while now, it's been... Uh, it's been discussed that the encryption has been cracked, um, and there are a number of ways to get around the pins. It's not across the board 100%, um, but we're beginning to see uh, a lot of the data that used to be considered untouchable on the Blackberries is now uh, becoming accessible. So in general, uh, especially if corporate security people are, are listening in today, um, they should kind of, they need to consider what um, data might be recovered. And I think the answer is generally, Forensic specialists can recover more data uh, than than uh, corporate IT security people think, and it's definitely worth looking into um, what platform you use, uh, what might be recovered, and then steps you can take to to mitigate that risk if it's if it's something that's unacceptable to your company. Well, one of the best ways to mitigate risk and secure the smartphone is with a passcode. But what constitutes a passcode that's strong enough to do the job? That's a great question as well. Um, we have a uh, article that will come out in uh, Digital Forensics Magazine at the 1st of February, and we talk about techniques uh, for cracking both the gesture, um, the pattern lock, if you will, on Android, as well as the pins and passwords. Um, and so we have, a, for forensic practitioners, we're going to have a full walkthrough on, on how you do these things. Um, on iOS as well, uh, we simply circumvent the passcodes, and, and we're able to get around almost all of the encryption that they've implemented. Um, but it is uh, important to point out that uh, on the iPhone in particular, there's a special type of data that the developers themselves can flag when they're creating their apps that says, not only encrypt this using our normal techniques, but also use the pin pass. If people implement the standard PIN on iPhone, which is a four-digit PIN, it takes us about 15 minutes to brute force it, usually less. Um, when people move up to a five- and six-digit PIN, uh, it takes quite a bit longer. Um, today, we, we brute force the, the, the PIN on the iPhone using the iPhone itself, so we're limited by the CPU power there. So we advise that people have at least six-digit um, passcodes or PINs on their Android or their iPhone device, um, and if possible, make them alphanumeric. If you're just doing a four-digit PIN on an iPhone, it's not going to stop folks um, that have the right tools and techniques. Um, and with, with Android, it remains to be seen because we have to look at how they use the PIN in the past to then encrypt the data. 
Um, but in general, four is not going to be big enough. You have to at least probably get up to six digits, and ideally it would be alphanumeric instead of just numeric. I think you're going to shock a lot of people that 15 minutes is all it takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And usually it's actually quite a bit less. We uh, The article that, that'll come out in DFM uh, in a couple of weeks, I think will be very, very interesting to, to people that are that are uh, into researching this topic because we give a complete walkthrough on on how you can decode these things. Well, I know we've enjoyed your white papers very much. We we thank you for joining us today, Andrew. We've been following your work for a very long time with a lot of admiration. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of the podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics, Technology, and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.